Hey, idiot. Nice catch. Down the hill I go. A classmate, we'll call him Steve, has just tackled me for the upteenth time this week. I was wanting to play some touch football with the guys at recess, but it always seems to end with me, all five foot four, 110 pounds of me, being tackled down the hill by Steve and his 5'10", 140-pound frame. Before a few uh, discreet shots to my body while I'm getting up. That's a lot of size to give up. And when I'm not getting pummeled by him at recess, Steve is finding other ways to make my life hard. Whether that be destroying the sports posters in my locker, tripping me while in class, tearing up my drawings from art class, or creating pictures of me in his choir notebook that he shouldn't have been. This has been going on for months. Teachers don't believe me when I call out the smartest kid in class who always seems so polite and well-spoken to adults. Why, oh God, are you allowing this to happen? Don't you care that this is happening to me? This is where my mind was in the ninth grade. How can a loving God look down on one of his children and let him suffer? This was my thinking. And such has been the thinking of many a believer throughout history. The world would respond, he clearly doesn't care about you. Or, God doesn't exist. Why are you crying out to him? In Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Harry comes to a sickening realization. Professor Dumbledore, the man he has trusted his entire life and his entire time at Hogwarts, has planned for him to die. Dumbledore had given Harry the mission of destroying Voldemort's horcruxes, the seven parts or objects that held his soul. And what Harry didn't know was that he himself was one of them. But Dumbledore knew how neat, how elegant not to waste any more lives, Harry reflects, but to give the dangerous task to the boy who has already been marked for slaughter. Harry feels bitterly betrayed. He had never questioned his own assumption that Dumbledore wanted him alive. As we look back over Harry's life, those of you who know the Harry Potter books or movies, we see Dumbledore's role in Harry's suffering from the beginning. When Harry was orphaned as a baby, Dumbledore left him with his horrible aunt and uncle. When, uh, as he grew up, Aunt Petunia, his aunt, absolutely hated him because she had hated his mother. Dumbledore later tells Harry, you had suffered. I knew you would when I left you. If there is a God in charge of everything, a God with even more power over us than Dumbledore had over Harry, why would he let bad things happen? How can we believe that God is full of power and love when he lets wars break out, when he lets families break up, when he lets kids get bullied, and when he lets babies die? This is a question that everyone should ask. And it would take a series of books longer than the Harry Potter series to answer it properly. But Tonight, we're going to look at one story about Jesus and what this story tells us about suffering. From this story, we'll see that God really is in charge and he really does care. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 11 tonight. And I'm just going to talk through this. I'm going to leave it on the screen for you guys to read as I go. But this story has to deal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus who are three of Jesus' best friends. They lived in a small village outside Jerusalem. They'd welcomed Jesus to their house. They'd heard him teach before. 
And one day their brother Lazarus gets sick. Incredibly sick. Deathly sick. But Mary and Martha weren't too worried. They knew a miracle worker. Thousands of sick people had come to Jesus throughout his ministry and he'd healed them. So they sent Jesus a message. Lord, he whom you love is ill. You'd think Jesus would come right away, right? But he doesn't. John writes, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. How weird is that? John doesn't say that Jesus got up immediately and went to his friends. John doesn't say Jesus didn't really love his friends, so he thought he'd just wait around and get there when it was convenient. No, John says that because Jesus loved his friends, he didn't come. In fact, Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead, and then he came. What do we learn from this? One thing we learn is that there are times when God intends us to suffer. Not because he doesn't love us, but in fact because he does love us and care about us more deeply than we can imagine. We may not understand it at the time, just as Harry didn't understand why Dumbledore had left him with the Dursleys. But we know that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and because he loved them, he didn't come. So maybe you've been suffering in your life. Maybe you've prayed really hard for God to take away that suffering. Perhaps someone at school bullies you, and you've prayed that he would stop, but he hasn't. Perhaps your mother got really sick, and you prayed for her to get better, but she didn't. Maybe you've prayed and prayed and prayed that your parents would stop fighting, but they got a divorce instead. If God loves us, if God is in charge, we might think he'd take away sad things when we ask, and sometimes he does. I've had those experiences, but sometimes he doesn't. I've had that happen too. Just like when Mary and Martha called for Jesus and he didn't come, but that is not the end of the story. When Jesus does finally come, Lazarus has been dead and buried for four days. Martha goes out to greet him as he's coming to the village. Lord, she says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. This is pretty incredible faith. Martha believes that Jesus can heal her brother even though he's been dead for days. So what does Jesus do? Does he rush out to bring Lazarus back from the dead? No. Instead, he stops and he talks with her. And Jesus says in John eleven twenty three, your brother will rise again. Many Jews in that day and age, believed that there would be a resurrection at the end of time, that God would bring everyone who had died back to life. So Martha responds, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And yet, as we read the passage, you can almost hear her thinking, what about now, Jesus? What about now? Why won't you help me now? Why didn't you care for my brother now? The Bible does promise that God will put everything right for his people in the end. When Jesus comes back as king, there will be no more death, mourning, crying, pain, sadness. And we see that in Revelation 21. But oftentimes, while we're going through hard times, that doesn't feel very comforting. 
that future seems a long way off. Martha believes that her brother will come back at the end of time, but she wants him back now. She knows how powerful Jesus is. She knows he could raise Lazarus right away, but he doesn't. Instead, Jesus looks into this grieving, heartbroken woman's eyes and says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha wants to have her brother back more than anything in the world. She's desperate. Jesus could make her deepest wish come true. But instead of giving Martha her wish, Jesus tells her what she needs most is not her brother, but Jesus himself. He is the resurrection and the life that she is desiring so strongly. Sometimes, if we're honest, we want the gift more than we want the giver. Think of a spoiled child who whines or complains whenever his parents don't give him the thing that he wants. He wants the gifts. He doesn't really want his parents. If he doesn't get it, he screams, he complains, he moans. He tells them, essentially, I don't want you. I just want stuff. I want what you can give me. Now again, think about Harry Potter. Harry's parents died when he was a baby. And when he looks in the mirror of Erised, the one thing that shows what you really want in life, he sees himself with them. Just being with his parents is his most desperate wish. He doesn't want their money. He doesn't want their stuff. He wants them. And when Jesus looks into Martha's eyes, he tells her the greatest truth that you and I could ever learn. What we need most is not what Jesus can give us. It's Jesus himself. He is the resurrection and the life. This ties right in with prayer. Sometimes we think of prayer like a genie. Like it's just God's way of granting us whatever we wish or desire. Sometimes we think of prayer like a vending machine. We put a coin of prayer into the machine, we press the number for the thing we want, and we expect God to drop whatever it is right into our hands. After all, if God really loves us, surely he'll give us what we desire, right? And then when we don't get what we ask for, we must think the vending machine of prayer is broken. But God's not a means to an end. He is the end. He's not a vending machine. He's a person. He's not just the greatest gift giver in the history of the world. He is the greatest gift. And he meets us most tenderly in our suffering. Uh, Christian rapper NF reflects on sort of the current state of prayer in our modern world and how we as Christians often view prayer. In his song, um, Oh Lord, he says, Don't nobody want to pray till they got something to pray for. Now everybody's going to die, but don't know everybody live though. Sometimes I look up to the sky and wonder, do you see us down here? Oh Lord, do you see us down here? It's easy to blame God, but harder to fix things. We look in the sky like, why aren't you listening? Watching the news in our living rooms on the big screens and talking about if God's really real, then where is he? You see, the same God that you might be saying might not even exist, he becomes real to us, but only when we're dying in bed. When you're healthy, it's like, we don't really care for him then. Leave me alone, God. I'll call you when I need you again. Which is funny. Everyone will sleep in the pews 
then blame God for our problems like he's sleeping on you. We turn our backs on him, but what do you expect him to do? It's hard to answer prayers when nobody's praying to you. I look around at the world we walk on. It's a smack in the face. Don't tell me there's no God. And if there isn't, then what are we here for? And what are we doing down here? I don't know, Lord. You see, that's the way we often treat prayer. That's the way we often treat faith and our relationship with God. Ignore him while we're doing well. And when something goes wrong, we pray to him acting like he's a genie or a vending machine. But that's not who God really is. That's not the relationship God really has with us. God's not some genie in the sky just waiting to grant wishes. God is a personal God who is in relationship and wants relationship with you and me. And we see this again in John. Martha says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. And then she calls Mary, her sister, who falls at Jesus' at Jesus's feet and repeats her sister's complaint. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Like Mary and Martha, we can cry out to God in our suffering. In fact, the book of Psalms is full of suffering. People crying out to God, asking him why he isn't helping them. I've been in that place. Probably some of you guys have been too. Crying on the floor, asking God, why won't you help me now? If you're a follower of Jesus, you will find yourself in this place at some point in your life. Lying like Mary at Jesus' feet and wondering, why is he not answering my prayer? So how does Jesus react to Mary? How does he react to us when we cry out in our pain? Jesus doesn't immediately raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't immediately comfort Mary. No, Jesus asked where Lazarus' body had been laid, and then Jesus wept. Why is Jesus so upset? If he had come when Mary and Martha had called, Lazarus would not have died. No one would be crying now. No one would be gathering around their family home in mourning. But when people saw Jesus, some thought that he must have loved Lazarus very much, but others asked, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? The answer is, of course, yes. Jesus could have stopped Lazarus from dying, but he chose not to. Even so, he cried with his friends. Jesus was no faraway God watching us suffer from a distance. He is the God who steps into our suffering with us. He is, as Isaiah the prophet called him in Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows. The man, God in the flesh, who experienced hurt, suffering, discomfort, pain. We see this all throughout the gospel, how Jesus hurts for hurting people. When kids are hurt, they want their parents. They'll hold them in their arms, they'll comfort them. But sometimes, to help them out, parents have to do painful things. If you get a cut, if you bruise your knee, you might have to put ice on the bruise. You might have to put antiseptic or alcohol on the bruise. Those things hurt in the short run, but they're necessary for our health eventually. Sometimes kids cry and fight, as we all do in our suffering, but when their parents hold them, when they comfort them, even when they have a painful thing to do, 
that child is on the route to healing. Likewise, when we suffer, Jesus holds us. He holds us in our heartbreak. He holds us in our fear. He weeps with us when we weep. He knows the end of the story when one day he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. But this does not stop him from holding us now as well in our pain. In fact, pain is a place of special closeness with God. Perhaps you've noticed this in your own life. You can laugh with anyone. We laugh here all the time. But we tend to cry only with those who are closest to us. Our bonds tend to be the strongest with the people who suffer with us because we know that they really understand who we are. In Jesus, we find the one person who knows all our heartache, even more deeply than anyone else can imagine. If you've ever been let down or teased or bullied or felt alone or terribly sick, Jesus knows how you feel. The Bible tells us there's no wound of ours he cannot touch. He knows the end of the story when he will make a whole new, better world, and yet he also weeps with us while we weep. But that, too, is not the end of the story. You see, Jesus doesn't just walk away crying. He goes one step further. When Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, he is deeply upset again, and he commands that the gravestone be taken away. Martha warns him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. But Jesus insists. He prays, and then he shouts, Lazarus, come out. The dead man gets up and walks out of his grave. Unlike people throughout most of human history, many of you probably don't know that many people who have died. If you haven't been close to people who have died, it's easy to forget that one day you will die yourselves. But I want you to know that when death comes, Jesus will be with you. And one day when your bodies have rotted and your lives have been forgotten, Jesus will call you out of your graves, just like he called Lazarus. The one who called stars into being will also call them back from death to life. You see, Jesus isn't just loving. He's powerful. When Harry goes to his death, he carries with him a resurrection stone, sitting in the golden snitch from his first Quidditch match, seemingly a small gift from Dumbledore. But again, Dumbledore had planned for Harry to suffer and die. He had also planned for Harry to come back to life. The words I open at the close, which are engraved on the snitch, hold more than one meeting here. Harry didn't know his life would be saved, but Dumbledore did. And when the time came, it was. If we're trusting in Jesus, we also are holding a resurrection stone in our hands. Nothing can snatch it away from us because nothing can take us away from Jesus. Nothing can break us away from the resurrection and the life. The only man who has ever beaten death, beat death for us. And he has promised to give us life, not just a few more years, but eternal life. So at the end of all this, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live a life in pain and sorrow, a life of good times and bad? The Bible would say yes. What could possibly be worth this life? Jesus' claim is that he is worth it. 
If you're trusting in Jesus, you can be sure that any suffering you face is not because he doesn't love you, but because he does in fact love you. He loves you deeper than you can possibly imagine. This doesn't mean we'll always understand why we go through things. Oftentimes, we won't. The Bible is full of suffering people crying out to God and asking, Why? Why, God? Why do you not hear me? Oftentimes, there are no easy answers. But if Jesus was willing to suffer and die for us, we can trust his claim, even with our most terrible hurts. He is the resurrection and the life. He is writing our story right to the end. And if we're trusting in him, we can trust that that end will be unimaginably good. So God is in control of all things, including our suffering. God doesn't let us suffer because he doesn't love us or because we haven't done enough for him. He meets us in our suffering and promises to bring us through it. He promises promises to meet us there and help us along our journey. Jesus isn't a means to end a means to an end to change our circumstances. He is the end. He isn't just a way to get a better life. He is the resurrection in the life. The point of prayer isn't just to get things from Jesus, but to get closer to Jesus himself. And even though Jesus knows the end of the story when he will wipe every tear from our eyes, Jesus weeps with us when we weep. Often we don't understand the reason for our suffering, but God knows the end of our story And if we're trusting in him, it will be unimaginably good. The Bible tells us many times over that for those who love God, God has a plan for everything, even the hard times. In the midst of my experience being bullied in ninth grade, I had no clue what God was trying to teach me. It certainly wasn't pleasant. I often wondered why God was allowing it to happen. It was painful. It has left deep scars, some visible, some in my heart. But God brought me through it all. He resolved the story in a way that eventually I was pulled out of that. Eventually, the bullying ended and Stephen got what was coming to him. He received the consequences for his actions. And as for me, God used that experience in my life to create stepping stones along my path for the last 10 years to be where I am today. I can confidently say I would not be a teacher, I would not be a leader here at youth group if I hadn't gone through that experience, if God hadn't used that experience to create in my heart a heart for younger people who are also suffering. So many of you are going through things. Some things are On the surface, not that hard. Some things are incredibly hard and incredibly painful. Whatever you're going through right now, God has the ability to work that for good in your lives. But you have to trust him with it. You have to trust him and keep persevering through that pain. You have to trust him knowing that he can work that suffering for good. That doesn't mean it's not painful. That doesn't mean we can't weep. But we need to trust in the end that Jesus weeps with us and walks us through that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage 
and many passages like this throughout scripture. I thank you that you are not an impersonal God who looks from afar as we suffer through the sins and through the hardships of this world. I thank you that you are a God who loves us, who cares for us, and who knows what it's like to walk through suffering. As we just commemorated with Good Friday and Easter, I thank you that you sent your son down to die for us, to suffer more than we ever possibly could. Lord, I pray for each of these students as they walk through things, the pains of growing up, the pains of getting older, the pains of school. Father, you know the suffering that each and every one of them is going through. I pray that they would persevere, and I pray that they would use the suffering to grow closer to you, Lord. That even as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, that we can be joyful in our suffering, that we can come closer to you through it. I pray that we would trust you with that, and I pray that you would guide us closer to you. I pray that you would bless the discussions we're about to have, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, thank you guys. Awesome, thanks, Alex.